Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man that's responsible for breaking some of the biggest records within the past 50 years from artists such as Barry White, Luther Vandross, a little artist from across the pond by the name of Sade, various of us, got to start in 1971 promoting That Nigga's Crazy by the late great Richard Pryor on Stats Records, worked at various labels in between, and now is the founder CEO of T.C. Tompkins LLC Marketing Company, taking his experiences from his 50 plus years in the music industry and applying it towards the digital age, and he's the author of this great book, when Radio Was King, available wherever you can get it. It's a great book. And like LeVar Burton says, you don't have to take my word for it. So ladies and gentlemen, let's please give a round of applause to Mr. T.C. Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins, thank you for coming on Beyond the Album Cover, sir. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you taking the time out and to talk about your book and your times in the music industry because I was fascinated with your book since I know various people within the music industry and always heard mm -hmm. stories behind the scenes of how shady these record executives can be, <laughs> especially when you're working in the black urban R&B or even rap department. Even. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm hoping that the industry has changed a lot since I was uh, in charge of the black division, but there was tons of racism back in, in when I was in the business back then. But you know, like you said before we started the interview, it was much more of a wild, wild west kind of situation, especially from the 70s into the 80s. Uh, I, I talk about in my book that you wouldn't have recognized New York City in the late 70s, you know, that it was just an open drug market. That's basically what it was, you know. It was just a, an era where... Uh, well, matter of fact, just just take a, a listen, look at what was on TV, Miami Vice. That lets you know what was going on in the streets right there. Right. So I had uh -huh. visions of seeing New York during that time period where apartments were being burned out. Some lords were trying to collect their insurance money, the peepholes mm -hmm. in Times Square. And this was at the start where hip hop got its origins. That's very true. Very true. That's the streets of New York were pretty tough back then. Because when I first got to New York in 78, uh <clears throat> like I say, it was an open drug market, man. And it was a lot of poverty. A lot of black areas had been uh taken over and demolished and buildings burned out. And there was a lot of uh heroin. I, I think that was right before the crack epidemic. Because I think crack came in the 80s, but I know how long was a big narcotics in New York when I first got there in the, in the late 70s. Matter of fact, uh, I used to drive my kids. I take I think it's a story in my book where I used to drive through Harlem on my way to New Jersey. We used to go through an area on 116th Street where it was just like an open drug free market. Heroin addicts were in the middle of the street nodding out. Some women would be there holding their babies, you know, while they getting the fix. It was it was ugly. So right. it was ugly. Man, I could definitely bet. So let's back up to the beginning. Born in Richmond, Virginia, raised in Texas. What led you to want to get into this wild industry known as the music business? Love of music. 
just a straight up love of it. And I'm telling anybody that's interested in getting into the industry, if you don't get in for it for the right reason, it, it, it is a death trap. But if you get into it for the love of the music and the industry, uh, that was my pure intent is that, like I said in my book, when I was in Vietnam and I left high school, I really didn't have any directions. I was an intelligent young man. I thought I was. At least I was in the top 10 of my class. I always did well in school. Never really applied myself the way I think I should have. Uh, you know, when you're young and stupid, you do a lot of stupid stuff. But uh, I joined the Army and wanted to see the world. And while I was in Vietnam, uh, I had to make a decision. I mean, what the hell are you going to do when you get back to, to the States? You know, uh, I definitely didn't want to re-enlist in the Army. I'd had enough of uh, Vietnam and, and being in the service. So I had to make a decision of what direction I want to take my life. And I just made a decision right then, not knowing nothing about the industry, because people find it hard to believe. <laughs> I had no idea or no clue what the industry was about. What was it consisted of? Only thing that I knew was what I heard on the radio, was the music I heard on the radio. But I had just made up in my mind that I wanted to be in the music industry, you know? Right. So being in mm -hmm. Vietnam with the radio formats over there, I believe, like most of Europe, is very open to where you have one or two stations pretty much playing a wide swath of music, yeah. regardless well, of know, the genre. Yeah, early, I, back then, though, see, the only station that was available to us when we were in Vietnam was the military uh, radio stations, which was Stars and Stripes. Stars and Stripes radio was the only thing that we were privy to hear, but it played a lot of Black music because there was a lot of Black soldiers in Vietnam. You know, uh, matter of fact, I will just tell a story. That was the first time I heard It's a Man's World. I was in a foxhole in Vietnam when I first heard that record. So, uh, there was uh, a lot of emphasis on the music. And it just so happened when I got back to the States, I married a young lady from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which was the home of Stax Records. And after I got moved to Staten, moved to Memphis, I, I got my first job. I was, matter of fact, I was in the music, I was in the jewelry business. I ran a uh, jewelry store for Zales Jewelers. And, uh, but, that wasn't, you know, that was just a job to me. I just didn't, and, you know, I was doing doing my job. I was managing the store, but I didn't see it as a career. You know, I didn't see me getting passionate about selling diamonds. Uh, and uh, so I, I wanted to get in the music industry and I started working up relationship with some of the artists that was on Stacks Record, Eddie Floyd and uh, Tim Priest, Barcase. All those guys lived in this area where we lived in. Matter of fact, my house that we were staying in with my mother-in-law back then was probably about four blocks from Stax Records. It was right around the corner from us on Lamar. And uh, and uh, I find my wife got a job at Stax. She was the first person to start working over there at the Tape Librarian. I know people won't know what I'm talking about, but back in the day when there were analogs, and there was nothing was digital. Everything was recorded on a big, wide 12-inch tape, okay? And they had to keep those tapes at a certain temperature in a vault. <laughs> and that was her job was to, you know, keep logs of all the ins and outs of the tapes and all the material, recording material that go in and out of the studio. 
and I, I eventually got a job at Stacks in their sales department uh, when they were trying to get into distribution. Now, working in sales for a record label, did you have to work all over across the country or were you assigned to a particular region to do sales? I had a particular region. Uh, we were, what they had done was they had purchased a couple of other distributors or one stops in other parts of the country. And they had those outlets when there was physical product. Now, these are all elements when there were physical product. None of these elements are around anymore at all, which I think is a is a, a damn shame, excuse the French, because there were a lot of Blacks that owned these one-stops and retailers and wholesalers, and they were in this chain from the merchant to the, to the consumer. So Black participation was high in the industry back then, but higher than it is now. Uh, you know, because there were uh, Ernie's One Stoppers in Chicago that was owned by Blacks. Fletcher's was owned by Blacks. Eddie Kendrick's, matter of fact, brother had a One Stop in uh, in Detroit. Kendrick's One Stop. But uh, I started off working four states, and uh, I was selling 45s. For your for your listeners, that's wax, small what they call small seven inch wax. Which, which singles used to come on. Uh, and the 12-inch wax was when the albums, was LPs. But I, that's what I started off doing. That eventually went out of business. They moved me to promotions. That's when I met Richard Pryor uh, with that project, That Niggas Crazy. And right. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so was that a tough sell trying to get that album sold? Because this was back during the time where retailers wouldn't even sell an explicit comedy record. It was only the mom and pops, and if they did oh, sell yeah. it, it would be in the back of the back of the record store or yeah. behind the counter with a brown paper bag or something well, to cover it, up it, the it, label. As secret as is known, as little as known, there were tons of outlets that would sell that. There were more of those type of stores that you're talking about, small mom and pop stores, than there were chains, especially in the black community. It wasn't major chain retail chains in the black community. Uh, they didn't have a Peaches or a Tower. These are the stores, a major store chains that used to be in the major metropolitan shopping areas. They used to have Tower Records, Peaches Records, Warehouse Records, uh, Discount Where All those record stores were owned by major chains. Most mom and papa shops or black shops were owned by an individual or a family. And we have no problems placing that material in those stores. Okay, that's because that's the only place it's sold. Like you said, you go in a major chain, you got to go in the back, <laughs> in the corner, in the back to find it, where they keep the, what they call the red light district projects or red light out. They have them in the back, <laughs> right up front in a bomb and pop, because they know they're sold. Yeah, they sold like hotcakes and deals right oh, around yeah. the era where you had OK Records and Leroy mm -hmm. and Skillet, LaWanda Page, Willie yeah. Tyler and Lester, Red Fox. It was those albums you had to there make sure the kids were in bed before you put on because you had no uh -huh. business listening to it. Absolutely. That's what, those were the Red Light projects. That were all the projects. And we had little snippets that we took out of Richard's uh, project. But I would, like I say in the book, I wasn't with Stacks very long. I didn't get a chance to really work with Richard other than an introductory and, and going out on the road with his project. They moved me 
<clears throat> to promotions. Uh, and I started on custom labels and I started doing, that's when I started doing Richard stuff. But I left there and went to Capitol Records within the first year. All right, so talk about that transition going from Stacks to Capitol. Well, that's really where I learned the industry. The first part of the industry was with Capitol because I really didn't have enough experience at Stacks to kind of know what I was talking about. Okay, I, all I had when I was at Stacks was I was just eager uh, ambitious or wanted to learn, you know, I was willing to learn. But when I got to Capital, I actually had material. Capital didn't have a lot of great material in the beginning. Uh, after I was there for a while, they signed Natalie Cole. Uh, because when I first got there, I think the only group that they had that was doing anything was Tavares. Uh, all the other acts that they had were never really developed. Uh, they had Tavares, then we had Natalie Cole, and then we had Mays. Uh, but before Natalie Cole and Mays, it was real slim pickings. As a matter of fact, they used to, they, uh, the guys that worked for Motown in Atlantic, they used to dog me because they called me the dog kitchen because all the records I had were dogs, you know. Uh, and that's what they were calling when the records wasn't hit record. They said, man, you got another dog record. So uh, I, I, I earned, my, I earned my, my stripes there because I worked my butt off. I had to. I didn't have a strong material. You know, so when you don't have strong material, man, you got to make up with it with kindness and effort. I went, I went to see everybody that was anybody. I went to see them. I went to all the small radio stations that nobody else would visit. I went to all the retail outlets. I had relationships with almost everybody in that four state area before I left and went to Chicago because I, I, I worked my butt off. That's one of the reasons why I got good at it. I just worked my butt off. Right. Now, what were the four mm -hmm. states that you cornered? Uh, in the beginning, I had Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. Very seldom went to Oklahoma because it was only one city in Oklahoma. I had a station that was Tulsa. I think they got something in Oklahoma City. Now they do. But uh, most of my time was in Houston, uh, where I'm at now, because Houston was the market that was breaking most of the records. Uh, Houston had a, a KYOK, which was the big FM down here. And I, I, like I mentioned in the book, the program director was named George Boogaloo Frazier. He was world famous. He used to carry a big 44 Magnum. He used to have it on his desk all the time. But that station was a station where everything was happening. You know, they were doing the shows. Dramatics would come into town quite often. Chaka Khan. Uh, big shows in Houston. And they were bust. They were busting records. This was the market for breaking new acts. Right now, did you come any come across spending some time in the offices of various people at KCOH down in Houston? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I used to stay. I used to know Travis Gardner. That was the KCOH. Paris Ely, matter of fact, that was end up being my boss later on at CBS. First met him at KCOH. He was a part, he was a DJ. I was down there working him. Uh, I worked KCOH uh, every time I was in the city, but KCOH really back then didn't have no punch. You know, it it does sell, and I say that for it does sell music. It used to sell music, but it was uh, the signal wasn't really strong enough to make a real impact. Right, and this is mm -hmm. back during the days when AM radio was king, and if yeah. you had a whole bunch of power at a certain time at night, you had to oh, reduce yeah. the power down so that you wouldn't have clear channel interference. No, yeah, you could go across the world. I mean, I I used to listen to uh, 
Chicago and New York in my house in East Texas. That's where the only place I could we could really get good music was late at night. Like you said, these uh they used to have an all-night music show used to come on at I think it was WLS in uh in uh, in Chicago. And uh they used to be uh have play all the black music late at night and you could order the music from the radio station. That's how I first started ordering music. That's what everybody used to do, because there wasn't any black stations in certain areas of the country. You know, it was all the black station I think was back then was in Memphis. And that was, I believe, uh, WDIA, which uh, I believe B.B. King got uh -huh. a start there. Absolutely. The late Rufus Thomas got a start there and definitely yeah. played a monumental role with exposing black, black music. music to a wider audience, along with WHBQ in Memphis. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. DIA is still like a, you can hear DIA down to the, to the Gulf Coast. It's a 50,000 watt AM. Bobby OJ, good friend of mine. Uh, program that station for years and had the morning show over there. I, I spent a great deal of time in Memphis. My daughters were born in Memphis. So Memphis is like home, you know. It isn't the city that it used to be. I hate that because I used to love Memphis, man. Uh, when they pulled out all the industry and all the manufacturing in Memphis, the crime became a big problem in the city. But back in the 60s and 70s, man, Memphis was haunted. Stacks was open, you know. There was people were working. There were tons of industry in the city, so you know. And it was such a clean city. I used to really like it. Yeah, I had a chance to visit Memphis a couple of years ago. My wife and I, and mm. I told her, I don't care where we go in Memphis. I got to go to the Stacks Museum. I got to oh, yeah. go. So I got to see all of the archival footage, the vehicles, the old real to real machines. And we made a pit stop to Reverend Al Green's church. Now, oh, yeah. on the rare Sunday, he was there. And I was I trying my hardest. That. You caught him there. Yeah, uh, I was trying my hardest not to fanboy during the service. I had enough uh, decency in me to not take no pictures inside the church because I'm there to worship, not to say, hey, can you do? I'm so tired of being alone while preaching. But his voice still sounds like. Oh, yeah. Now, Al, Al still got it, man. Al still got it. I mean, he was an institution in Memphis when uh when we were up there, uh, when I lived in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's Al talk, Strong. Yeah, yeah, definitely a legend. So let's talk about mm -hmm. the first time you heard She's Gone by Tavares, and then your thoughts when the Apple got a chance to get bitten twice with that song when Hall of Notes covered it. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I both of them I thought were great songs. I didn't particularly love them. Uh, matter of fact, I heard She's Gone just the other day. It's on my playlist. Uh, She's Gone is a pop record, okay? And uh, and the way it was cut was pop with Tavares and the way it was cut with pop with Hall and Oates. I'll be true with you. I mean, I love both both renditions. I know the guy, I know Tavares, so you know I'm, I'm, I'm partial to them. I know those guys, I work with them. Uh, matter of fact, it's a picture of me with them and Boogaloo in the book, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they used to do club. Used to do club dates down there. They were they were they were hot at. Yeah, definitely white hot. And this is also coming off of Saturday Night Fever, and everybody's still mm -hmm. trying to cash in on the last bit of disco. Now we were talking prior to when the interview started that at the end of March the Spinning Gold movie would be coming out about Casablanca Records and how mm -hmm. that record label launched superstars, Kiss, 
Donna Summer, list goes on and on. But Neil Bogart got to start working at Buddha Records with yeah. the Isley Brothers and the Ohio Express. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got love in my tummy. So let's talk about Casablanca Records and how the industry. Well, I, I, really I didn't really in. know much about Casablanca other than people that I knew that worked there. Uh-huh. I had no dealings with them. Uh, I know that they were live. I know that Casablanca was wild. Uh, they uh, they took no prisoners, so that's how they did what they did. I never really worked with Casablanca. I've only known two people that were there. No, three. Gerald Busby was there for a while. I know Gerald. Uh, Maurice Warfield was there, and another friend of mine, Jesus, was there. So I really didn't have too much dealings with Casablanca. Right. Let's talk about Mr. Gerald Busby, because for me, I know Gerald Busby from his tenure over at MCA. And when he later Mm -hmm. went over to Motown and he was the guy that was responsible for having New Edition, the Jets, Jody Wadley, later Bobby Brown got signed and he went over to Motown and, of course, had Boys to Men, Today, the Good Girls, the Boys. So let's talk about Mm -hmm. the late, great Mr. Gerald Busby. Well, I, I knew Gerald when he, when I first got to CBS. He was working for CBS. Uh, he were, he was there for a moment, I think, before he went to Casablanca. I, I worked with him when he was at Motown because we had Guy uh, at at, uh, at MCA, and we had Rex and Effect at Motown. So I knew him, you know, on all levels. He was a great guy, good person, a good record man, you know. That's uh, really basically all I could say about him. I didn't really know him personally that well, mm-hmm. other than just business. Right. Okay. But I know he was a, he was a great guy. I never had no problems with Gerald. Uh, he supported the projects that I was working with. Like I say, he gave Gene that deal at uh, M- at uh, MCA with uh, with Guy. But Al Teller is really one's responsible for Guy and 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 uh, and uh, and. Teddy Riley and them happening. Gerald had left and went to Motown when and when uh when uh Guy and Teddy Riley and them happened. Wow, yeah. that is definitely a crazy story. We're gonna get into Gene Griffin and Guy a little bit later, but after mm-hmm. you went to Capitol, I believe you went to ABC Records, right? Yeah, worked at ABC for about two years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, with, now what was the difference as far as going from Capitol to ABC in terms of promotions and did the strategies for promotions change based on which market you were going to promote? Well, I, I was over the same markets, but it was Capitol and ABC was night and day. Uh, Capitol was very structured. ABC was not structured at all. ABC had a great roster. You know, they had Chaka Khan, they had uh, Rufus, I mean, Rufus and Chaka Khan, Dramatics, Four Tops, Crusaders, Horner Sisters, uh, Steely Dan. Uh, we had we had tons of stuff at, uh, in uh, ABC, and ABC was run by a black president. That's the only time I've ever worked for any label other than Stacks that the president was black, and that was uh, at ABC Records. Otis Smith ran or ABC Records when I was there. Uh, he was big. Matter of fact, he's the same guy behind uh, Anita Baker. He's the one that signed Anita Baker to her deal. Uh, so I was over there with a couple of years. I, I loved working at ABC because it was wide open. It was loose. Uh, you ran your own operations. We didn't have any kind of branch structure or any kind of managerial structure. So staff was basically all satellite personnel. 
So my my house is my warehouse, my office, my everything. Uh, you know, so we uh, then we had BB King and Bobby Bland. I forgot about that because we had that BB King and Bobby Bland project live with BB King about a plan that sold it. I mean, that record was just on fire. Uh, so, uh, and that was a double album, which was very rare that you get a double album. One of the person I know done it is James Brown. If you do a double live album and it sells, you know, that's that's very rare. Yeah, so what was that transition going from ABC and when you hit Chicago for the first time and what was that first Chicago winner like? Well, I hated Chicago winners. It was brutal. We had 88 inches of snow the first year I was up there. Uh, it was just unbelievable, man. You couldn't even see around it. You had to pull up to the stoplights and peep <laughs> around the snow to see if there's any incoming traffic. Uh, but I loved Chicago other than the weather, man. Chicago was a beautiful city back then. There wasn't no all that killing. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't no, man, I used to stay on the South side, go to all the clubs. I never even heard a shot. I stayed in Chicago three years, I believe it was. I never heard, uh, never heard a gun fired. Uh, I seen, I, you know, one thing Chicago, I remember Chicago for was women would fight in a heartbeat. I seen women fight clubs all the time, but it was just a good market. I met Minnie Rippleton when I was in there. Chicago for the first time. Met Herbie Hancock, Bill Withers, George Duke, Tyrone Davis, Johnny Taylor. All these artists I met while I was working in Chicago. And um, uh, Denise Williams, Gladys Knight Pips. I mean, man, it was just endless, you know. And uh, CBS and Columbia, because I worked for both Columbia and Epic back then as a, as a local for Chicago. So I worked all of their products, Teddy Pendergrass, OJs, Eisner Brook. So I just had a great time in the market, had three real strong black radio stations. E. Rodney Jones, uh, the legendary E. Rodney Jones was at BON. Uh, and had Ernest James, which was a great program director for uh, BMX. So it was a very rich market as far as black participation. Uh, they had three black one-stops, Ernie's one-stop, they had Fletcher's, they had another black one-stop, I can't think of the name of it, but uh, it was a lucrative, lucrative time, people were making money, uh, the market was real rich with excitement, you know, so I enjoyed that whole time I was there. Only time, I, only thing I hated about Chicago was well, you know, the weather was just brutal. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would bet. I would bet yeah. that, that little Pico jacket wasn't gonna cut it. <laughs> no, no. I, you know what the funny thing about it, man? I had been living, I had always lived down south. Chicago was the first time I've ever lived up in the Midwest of, of North. And my wardrobe was not <laughs> was not ready at all. I had to go buy a whole brand new uh, set of clothes when I got up there called Men. Winners of that dog don't play. Matter of fact, it was so bad I had never seen this. They have ropes tied to the buildings. So when you're down on Lakeshore Drive, that you can grab the rope so the wind don't knock you over. And the wind's like a razor, man, when it's when it's 20 or 30 below and shit. It will, it will, you got to put something over your face, your whole body. 
Yep, yeah. that's why I said I'll never live in the Midwest or the Northeast because yeah. my body's not built for that cold. So you mentioned WVON. For those of you that don't know, WVON stands for Voice of the Negro. And it was the station where Herb Kent, the cool gent, got that's his start. Right. And also a little man that you may know by the name of Mr. Don Cornelius. Yes, because originally Soul Train was a local show out of Chicago. And then when he said, I need to go somewhere else to get more acts. So he moved the show to LA. They still had the local version hosted by mm -hmm. a local host, but that was where the origins of Soul Train started. Absolutely. I see you know the history. Very history there. Yeah, yeah. That station was a uh was a uh very key in the black community, VON was, you know. And uh it was run like him, but like I said, by world famous E. Rodney Jones back then, because Al Perkins was in Detroit. E. Rodney Jones was in Chicago. And we had Frankie Crocker in New York. Yep, Mr. Frankie Crocker, the chief rocker, the man responsible for WBLS in the a man. class by itself. The, the man, he was a man in New York. No question. The guy that gave him the blues up there, though, was Barry Mayo. Barry Mayo came out of uh, Chicago. Barry Mayo took over WGCI when FM was really first starting. GCI, I believe, was the first FM station that I could go and not the second FM station uh, that I that I worked with. And Barry Mayo took over GCI and then went over from there. After he made GCI number one with Kiss in New York, uh, and he he gave he gave Frankie the blues. Yeah, a little help from me. <laughs> yeah, definitely that because I've always heard stories that Frankie Crocker was a particular fellow, especially he was very full of himself and rubbed people the wrong way and really wasn't the type of guy you could be buddy-buddy with. No, no, we did not hit it off at all. Uh, uh, I, I I tried to, you know, to be... Well, you know, I I probably had the wrong attitude because Frankie felt like he was special. I didn't feel like he was special. I understood that he was in the largest market in the world, you know, in the city, in the country, really. Uh, but he wasn't big enough to stop a number one record. I've had number one, number two records without having Chicago or New York, okay? If you have something strong enough uh, and you believe in it. I, you know what? I was the type of individual, I'm still like this. If I feel like my, my material is genuine and I feel like I have a genuine piece of art here, this is the genuine work of art, I'm not going to kiss anybody's behind or do anything special for you to consider something that deserves to be recognized for just what it is. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And was it around this time where labels were starting to use indie promoters to go to stations and promote records? Or was it when you still had people in the promo department going to the labels to try to get the PD to say, hey, play this record? And it was almost kind of like anything goes where you had to pay to play. And sometimes you had to get more it's, than just money. And, indies have always been an element in the music business. It is, it's not been a time when it hasn't. From the, be from the beginning, from the concept of the music business and making 45, there's always been payoff. And you're not going to ever get rid of it. I, I have a friend of mine tell me that when I first got in the industry, and I was a little young whippersnapper, uh, and I was talking about DJs taking money and 
uh, illicit money being involved. Illicit money is involved in everything in America. Let's just understand that right away. Illicit money is involved in your government, in your police department, in your juries, in your justice system. I mean, this is America. America worships crooks. You know, I mean, we, I mean, how can, how can uh, somebody like Al Capone be a hero? In America, he's a hero. You know, and so, don't even get me started on that. You know, because I go, I go on another. Oh no! Direction. Oh no! Oh no! 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 Yeah, no! I, no! Yeah, it's your time. It's your I, I don't time. feel. You know what? Look, somebody else asked me about that other day about payroll and blah blah blah. And man, I I don't have any problem with it because it started because black jocks was not making the kind of money they should be making. Man, I know when I was going to radio back in the day, man, they weren't paying them guys but maybe one hundred twenty-five dollars a week. $200 a week, something like that, the station making millions, you know, so the pay scale has never been right with radio, okay? Some of the big time, uh, some of the big time chains now, like Clear Channel, iHeart, uh, Series, uh, let me see, what is it? Uh, Cumulus, you know, Salem, you know, that's that's another subject too because since major corporations have gotten involved with music with radio music really has radio has really kind of lost its interest in music yeah i definitely yeah. agree with that yeah it's kind of it's kind of lost its interest in music radio kind of uses music now like a advertising arm it's not like a musical journey anymore okay Radios produces a sound that is conducive to you. They don't want to change the sound to where you may change the channel. So it has, you know, since there are so many other means of getting music nowadays, radio just feels like it doesn't have to consider itself the person that you go to for your music. Right, because okay. I definitely remember for me, I came at the tail end where radio was still that important medium to where you had your tape deck on the ready, ready to record your song off the radio, was, and you had yeah. to wait to maybe the next hour until that song got played, where how you mentioned now, due uh -huh. to streaming and all the other outlets, radio doesn't have that same effect. And no, no. I believe when Napster started to come into the industry, That's a lot changed. of the execs didn't really see the change coming and what mm -hmm. we're seeing now with the movie industry, they're going through what the music industry went through with streaming and everybody saying Absolutely. like, hey, I'm not going to yeah. go to a high price theater. Why go pay this high price money for a ticket and refresh when myself? I can sit, when in my I can sit at home. Make my popcorn. Yeah. I mean, I, I, man, I can't remember. Last, I think the last time I went to a movie, I took my grandson to see uh, Blackout, which was a waste of money. Uh, mm. Sorry, movie. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. So do you think uh -huh. a lot of the people in the industry are very risk averse and not really open to change because they're so seeing tunnel vision with all the money that's rolling in that when something that seismic happens, they're not mm. able to prepare themselves for the shift? Well, what is happening in the industry now is going through another change right now. Your, your listeners and viewers will realize soon you, your choices in new music are going to get slimmer and slimmer. 
other than through independent artists. If you'll notice, major record labels are not releasing as many releases as they used to. This, I'm usually, I mean, I do indie for a lot of labels and a lot of artists. I'm usually working at least five or six projects by now. I think I'm working one, okay? They have just, with the money that streaming is making for major labels, they don't need to risk their money on a new artist. You have to realize they're selling catalog that was paid for 40 years ago. Because what I listen to is not what you listen to. You're listening to a different generation of music. But since it is so available and so immediately available, people in my age range don't have to listen to radio anymore to hear our style of music. We just turn on Spotify or Apple and play whatever we want to play. I play Teddy Pendergrass, Luther Vandross, Chardonnay. I play stuff I want to hear. So I don't have, I very seldom listen to radio. Right. And with the recent news we've been seeing with legacy artists selling their catalogs, and now De La Soul just got their entire catalog put on streaming after years of fighting with Tommy Boy, we're starting yep. to see a change in the revolution and how artists are now saying, hey, we know more now. You can't mm -hmm. just hide behind the wall now. We want to take control of every aspect of the business and not just sign away anything and you give us that paper bag. What, they, what, they going, what, what is going to end up happening is publishing is everything, okay? Mm -hmm. Publishing for the long haul, not for the day, but for the long haul, is everything. That's why labels are buying up all these publishers. They bought up Bruce Springsteen's, Michael, they paid a half a million dollars, half a billion dollars for 50% of Michael Jackson's catalog. Right. And publishing right. is key. And if you know how to write, and that's the one thing Michael Jackson, the king of pop himself, he was very astute of the business. Don't, let the, don't let the glove fool you. Don't, no, don't let the, the high force fool you. He from no. Gary, Indiana. Yeah, I, I, I say that in the book. Don't let that back, that moonwalk fool you. Michael was as sharp as a tack man. Michael knew the industry. He knew the racism in it. I mean, you know, he he was not an ignorant person by any means. Don't let you think. He, he was a different person than when he wasn't on stage. Right. So okay. once so once Thriller became a big pop hit and off the wall, why was an R&B album hit? My favorite album, by the way, I like that over Thriller. Mm -hmm. Michael, I think once he saw that off the wall, wasn't getting the recognition he felt it deserved from pop. Thriller was a mainstay to say, hey, I'm going to go pop no yeah. matter what. So how do you handle well, the, the label? The, the label wanted that too, because I mean, I feel like you did off the wall is just as good or better than thriller. Okay, mm -hmm. the only thing is that it took that much of him and him generating up to that. Because what people have to realize, even though the Jacksons and Michael Newton was huge, Michael has not had a track record of of solo releases other than being. Okay. He didn't have all the other stuff he did. Uh, got to be the all the big records he had. It was mm -hmm. the Jackson. You know, he may have been the lead, but it was the Jacksons. And it was done under the Jacksons' banner. 
he's never been the headline act other than our, he was the headline act, but you understand in billing, in the billing, it's never been Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. Think about it. Mm -hmm. All their projects were the Jacksons. Right. It was never a Mike, I mean, you know, Chaka Khan and Rufus. Uh, it was none of that until off the wall. Right. The only other project he had with Michael Jackson was Bean. Mm -hmm. So how does the promotional strategy change when you have an album that you can work for multiple formats? Well, I, I had a lot to do with that because I, we had a lot of big fights about those two projects because they were important. I didn't like the fact that they put my, uh, Paul McCartney on the first single on Thriller. I hated that. The girl is mad. I thought that was a piece of shit, uh, you know, but it was done for political reasons. Okay. Paul McCarthy, you can't get no stronger pop radio than Paul McCarthy, okay? So that was the introduce Michael to pop radio mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a real way from the first release. And then that, that video on Billie Jean, there wasn't nothing you could do behind that, man. Mm -hmm. That was a masterpiece. Yes, definitely a master yeah. class. And there's a story mm -hmm. in Hitman about Mr. Walter Yetnikoff called MTV and said, I'm going to pull every last video from the library right. unless you play him. Because Rick James yeah. was talking about it, how MTV wasn't playing black art. Oh, they raced they race as if they could be, man. I mean, look, this is America. Man. You, you know, like, you'll see in my book, racism is everywhere. You, it, If you're black in America, it is a fact. It ain't nothing that you you think you may experience or you saw something. You're going to experience it. I mean, it, it's just a fact. And what I what I always because people ask me that, well, how did you handle that? I I've treated racism as a fact, but it never uh, it never really changed the way I handled anything. I acted as if I was a grown ass man at all times. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody has to call me on it, then we'll deal with it then, you know. Right. But up until then, until you put that N-word in, in somebody's mouth, we're going to deal with it like we're both two adult human beings, you know, not a mm -hmm. black man, not a white man, you know, and we're trying to accomplish something together. And that's the way you have to look at it. Uh, nice. uh, and uh, you can't go at it humbly. I mean, I trust me, I know. You know, now one of the reasons is you, if you buy my book, you find out is one of the reasons why I'm probably not at a major label is because I was always felt that I did not have to take a second seat to anyone, you know, and I felt like what I was doing was noteworthy. And I bring out the point in the book, uh, even though Epic had never been a black label. See, people don't think about that. Epic had never been a black label until Larkin Hall came over and started signing black acts to up to late to, uh, to Epic. Because the only black artists that they had were on custom labels. They weren't on Epic. They on Philly International and Taboo and all the other Teddy Pendergrass, OJs, you know, uh, Phyllis High, all those people, Philly International, Gene Kahn, you know. Uh, so Epic, Columbia is the one had uh, had the powerhouse, you know. Columbia had Johnny Taylor, Earth, Wind and Fire, Denise Williams, Bill Weathers, Minnie Ripperton. I mean, they 
They had everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so we didn't build into a black labor until I got there. Right. I yeah. came there in 78. I think Larkin came in 78. Wow. We both came in 78. Well, wow. so what was that like building a black roster from the ground up when their profile doesn't really give the cachet that this is where black art is accepted? Well, what happened and what really happened to me in my quest to do that was Frank DeLeo. Uh, Walter Yednikoff brought Frank DeLeo in to take over Epic Promotions. Well, uh, Frank DeLeo chose me as his national for Epic Records. And basically, after we did some house cleaning, he gave me run of the he gave me run of the of the of the stadium. You know, I could do whatever as long as I was breaking records. You know, this his only concern was that I didn't do anything illegal uh, and break records. And that was it. And I, that kind of loosened me up to do what I had to do, make the uh, investments. I did the black, I advertised with all the black trade outlets that I got that I got heat from all the time. Uh, I supported all our black artists with tours. You know, I put out, actually we were trying to develop, I put on tours, you know, it wasn't none of that. We can't afford it or nothing like that. I put them on the road. Let them meet and you know do the meet and greets, do the press parties. Same thing I did with Charday. I put Charday on the road. I had major press parties with her throughout the country, and introduced her to all what you would call influencers back then. <laughs> you know, like people like Calvin Klein, <clears throat> people like that. Our press department was very helpful in that. But I just demanded. That we get the, I never did though, even though I demanded that we get the attention that we supposed to get, even though we ended up being the number one black label in the world. I never even had a national. I never had a national director of promotions the entire time that, that I was at Epic. Now that's unheard of. Wow. Now with Sade, with her coming over from the UK, with the marketing strategy coming from Europe, to the U.S. and how U.S. radio was more segregated, you had to pretty much tailor it specifically to the U.S. urban market because if you do your research, people, over in Europe, you only had, at the time, your outlets such BBC. as BBC One, Capital FM. It was the U.K.'s equivalent to Top 40, and Black music only got heard on pirate radio like Kiss FM before they became legal, and so you really had to dig and search, but once Sade came into the U.S. with the Diamond Life album, that opened the door for all those later acts from across the pond, like 52nd Street, Loose mm-hmm. Ends, Five Star, Soul to Soul, Brand New Heavies, and pretty much said, hey, it's okay to bring your sound over here because there's an audience Absolutely. in the market for it. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a, I had to explain that situation to Sade uh, because she didn't know. She was being played pop, what we would consider pop in, in Europe. She was a pop artist. Matter of fact, she's a steal of pop. I just did an interview with London Radio, Smooth Radio, which is the black equivalent, the black radio station in London. I never even realized that they did not have a real black radio station in London until the nineties. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said before, then it was all powered radio. You'd have to—they uh, were broadcasting from ships and stuff, you know. Uh, but yeah, they uh, they do not play Charade on Black Radio. She's a pop artist. 
And that's what she was, that's what she was really concerned about coming to America was that she did not want to become uh, another R&B female artist. You know, she didn't want to become a Chaka Khan, which she thought it was a great artist and not, and had not been given the exposure that she should have got received. So I, I, I tried to explain to her and I finally convinced her that, that the only way that we were going to do what she wanted done with her material was to go through black radio. There was just no other way around it. Pop radio was not going to play her out of the box in America, you know. Uh, even though she had sold, I think back then, two to three million in Europe, she was big in Europe. Uh, but uh, there was no way that they were going to be playing smooth operator and diamond life out of uh, and uh, your love is king out of the box on uh, on pop radio. So it just wasn't going to happen. And I explained that to her, and we, I finally worked it out to where she understood what I was talking about. And she exploded like gangbusters, because like we mentioned over in Europe, you were pretty much getting played on BBC One, Capital FM, and if you got on top of the pops, you were pretty much a star all Absolutely. over Europe, because that was considered their equivalent of American Bandstand. And uh, Dixie Peach, he was the first Black presenter or top of the pops and how when a lot of American acts would go over to the UK to do a press, top of the pops mm -hmm. was the main stop. And if mm -hmm. you look at the Saturday Love video, I believe that was their top of the pop performance with Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle, I believe. Yeah, you know, you know what? I, I, was, I was going to mention that. That's why I was going to tell you, Alexander O'Neill is on fire in you. And they love him over there. I just talked to him uh, about two or three months ago, another him and another actor I worked with, Candice Woodson, had a big R&B record over there. And matter of fact, she introduced me to Angie Graves, which is the big, like the big Tom Joyner in the, in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was amazed that, uh, that Alexander O'Neill is, I mean, I mentioned that I worked with Alexander O'Neill uh, on his first stuff with, with uh, or with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, oh, they were just, that impressed the shit out of them because Alexander O'Neill is the man over there. Yes, yes, he is. And speaking yeah. of Alexander O'Neill and Taboo, let's talk about Mr. Clarence Avon. The man. As a matter of fact, I got to call him. I want to see that he get his book. Uh, I sent him a book. Uh, I sent it to his daughter because he's staying with his daughters now, uh, his daughter and his son take care of him. Because, you know, I think Clarence is 91, 92, something like that. Uh, but, and the, and the thing about it, I love Clarence. Uh, Clarence has been very influential in my career. I probably would still be working for a major if I had listened to him, but he'll tell you today that I was just, I'm just a hard-headed person that I'm going to do what I feel like I need to do. Uh, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And I've just been like that, uh, even though he warned me about a lot of things that I did. And that my answer would always be, fuck them. I mean, you know, if they can't take a joke, fuck them. Uh, but uh, he is, a uh, matter of fact, I, I, I spoke to him two days before his wife was killed. Mm. I spoke to him. I spoke to his wife. She answered the phone. Beautiful woman, man. I mean, just just a beautiful spirit, you know, just a, a, you know how some people brighten your, brighten your mood and mm -hmm. always got something 
nice to say about you and how you doing? You know, she was always witty and kind. You know, now me and Clowns used to F with each other all the time. You know, we talk about each other. I call him out his name. He called me out his name. You know, but we were we were really close like that. I used to love to mess with Clowns, man. I, I miss him, you know, because his memory is uh is kind of going. Uh but He's just a great individual and a care and a giving person, man. You know, something he told me one time, I never will forget, because uh, I was always messed with him, uh, that he got other people good jobs. You know, you, you would be surprised how many black men are working because of Clarence Avon, okay, that he did made the right call and that kind of stuff. And I used to mess with him because he gave one of my enemies a job, you know. Right. So he told me, he said, man, he called here crying. I had to do something for him, you know. I said, well, I ain't going to cry for you, yet, so you can forget that. You know, but uh, uh, what was I finna say? Oh, I said, I was just asking him about his money. I said, man, you know, I know you got some money. Give me some money, Clowns. You know, he said, man, he said, one thing that has saved me, the one thing that I got plenty of, and he said, that's friends. He said, I got good friends. And I mean, I can't tell you some of the stuff that his friends have done for him that he has told me about. I don't want to put his business in the street, but he got the right kind of friends. He got friends that own like Warner Brothers and AOL and Time Warner. And I mean, he got friends that sit on money. They don't count it. They weigh it. You know, so, yeah. They yeah. don't call him the Black Godfather for nothing. No, they don't call him Black Godfather for nothing, dog. I mean, if he wants something to happen, he can make it happen even today. You know, he just, uh, I remember I was trying to get a deal for somebody with Sony. He called, he said, oh, you want to talk to Big John? This John Smith runs Sony Music, Sony Publishing. Oh, okay, get Big John. Big John like his son, you know. And he, he just a, he's just a good person. I'm just blessed to have known him. Yep, check out the Netflix documentary, The Black Godfather, if you don't know who Mr. Clarence Everybody is. And it's from Climax, North Carolina. He sure is. Absolutely. Yes, sir. All the, all the, all the brilliant people, country boys, man. I, you know, they, they used to, let me tell you something. When I first got to New York City, they used to talk about me because I smiled all the time. This is a true story. Uh, my secretary and two or three other females were. Said TC, you got to stop doing it. People see you walking down the street, they think you a mark. You know, you think you're a mark because you're smiling. And I said, I'm not going to stop smiling because of these thugs. I mean, I ain't thinking about that shit. But that's what they think that you are too, guess attitude's too good. You know, you're supposed to be mad. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, they take you as wide open as all outside. But be, me being from the country myself, I get that a lot and that they take your kindness as being a Oh, yeah, absolutely. They take your kindness for weakness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but how hard is that to kind of keep that mindset about you in the industry where you can't be a sheep in a den full of wolves? Well, I I mean, I'm not going to lie. It hardened me. Uh, New York hardened me more than Chicago did. Chicago, I I really liked it. You know, the guys in Chicago were dirty, too. You know, but it was a different kind of dirty. New York, man, they play hardball, you know. So uh, I wasn't really prepared for some of the vindictive hate that I got when I got there. And you got to realize, man, uh, I mean, everybody said they admired me 
and, and admire the things that I have accomplished. But you got to realize, I, matter of fact, I was doing an interview the other day with a good friend of mine, Stan Brinson, program director down in Jackson, Mississippi. And he was just telling me, he said, man, when I met you, he said, you were like an idol. You know, he said, you had Michael Jackson, Shard Day, Luther Vandross, and Teddy Pendergrass. And I said, yeah, you know what? That same thing that made you idolize me made a lot of people hate me. You know, uh, I say, you read, you read in the book, people mad because I had Michael Jackson. The Bulls, the Bulls had Michael Jordan. I mean, what do you want me to do? You can't compete with that. No. I mean, what can I, you know, and I mean, I understand it. I understand the hate, you know. But see, I, I said, I said this, uh, I was a very more cruel and hardened person when I lived in New York. I'm a much better person now. But the competition was ugly. So I was ugly, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, and I try to tell everybody, it wasn't like it wasn't any competition out there. You know, you got to remember Whitney Houston was out there. Prince was out there. You know, I mean, they had a ton, ton, ton of hot acts out there. It was a good, rich environment for music, man, which I love, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I love being number one more. <laughs> right. So I'm sure you were looking at those industry trades like, hmm, we got these many number ones. MCA got these many. Arista uh -huh. got these many. I'm going to beat Clive. I'm going to beat Sylvia Rome. I'm going to mm -hmm. beat John McClain. I'm going to yeah. beat Ed Eckstein. I'm going to beat assert whatever music industry is. Well, you, well, you know what, though, man? You know what? I never really looked at it like that because I never really even considered it. I'll be real straight up with you. I never considered Sylvia Ron was a secretary when I was VP. Okay. Uh, she worked for Atlantic Records. I mean, I know Sylvia real well. Great person. Okay. But uh, I didn't consider what any other label was doing. I didn't. That didn't even come into my mindset. Mm -hmm. The only label that I felt that was out there was my label. And I, that's the truth. That's the truth. I only felt that I had a label. You know, I, that was the only label that I was concerned about. Whatever else somebody else was doing would have to take my crumbs of what I left. Because right. I was going to get mad. Okay. And I still got that same attitude. If I if I believe in a project, you've got to have that kind of attitude, dog. If you're going to if you're going to break all the competition and beat all the other people, all the other tricks that they're going to pull in, you've got to go out that door understanding that I don't give a, excuse my French, fuck what they do. I'm going to get mad. I'm going to make this work. Matter of fact, Charday, perfect example. Nobody could hear that record, man. <laughs> you, you, I was I, I had recorded the stuff that people used to say about how horrible she sings that she's off key, that the, the record ain't in the same groove. That's not R&B. She's not black enough. You know, I done heard it all, okay? But I knew that that record, Hang On To Your Love, had the same bottom track as Thrower. If you go back and look at, listen to Thrower and listen to Hang On To Your Love, it's the same rhythmic pattern. And I knew if I could get Thriller, I can get this. Mm -hmm. Plus, you better look in the mic. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and I, I told my staff, I didn't want to hear. I want a top 10 record out of this single. 
Right. I don't care what you got to do. I want a top 10 second. And we got it. Right. And you mentioned the book, The Late Tina Marie, and we just lost Bobby Caldwell. And this kind of brought mind to me of the time when you were trying to have a hmm. white artist go R&B where you didn't necessarily put the face on the album. You would let the touring or let the press appearance do the talking for you because mm -hmm. you want to build that R&B base first then go pop and that same strategy was applied with new kids on the block because i believe that was when larkin arnold was over at columbia cbs him and mm -hmm. cecil holmes and maurice Starr had signed new kids to the black mca yeah because i remember they had a video for please don't go girl on mm -hmm. bt and how when pop came in they reshot the video because mtv nickelodeon all came knocking so let's talk about yep. that strategy of how because I remember back in the day, they used to do two separate versions of the same song videos, one for mm -hmm. the urban outlets and one for the pop outlets. We never had to do that on my We, matter of fact, we never had to do that for any act. We never had to produce two separate videos for, for different formats. Uh, we had a nat we had naturals on all of ours. We let the music do that. We never had to do two videos. So, I mean, I never we never had to use that strategy. I never let use that strategy ever. Mm, and okay. that just goes. And we've play. been talking. We've been talking an hour, so I'm gonna have to go in a minute. Okay. All right. All right. So let's go ahead and let's jump and talk about Gene Griffin and Teddy Riley. Well, Gene was a drug dealer. Uh, I say that in the book. Uh, he was a heroin dealer, uh, one of the big ones in New York, uh, trying to do. But you know that thing wasn't big back then because every drug dealer was trying to get in the music business back in the late 70s and 80s. That's how Jay-Z got in. That's how a whole bunch of artists are. Cash Money, uh, you know, um, Rockefeller, uh, all of the labels. It started with drug money. So there wasn't nothing odd about that. It's just that a lot of majors didn't want to deal with because uh, Gene had a, uh, a kind of a, a beat up a kind of beat up person kind of guy. He had beat some people up. I've seen him beat some people up. He wasn't nobody to play with. Uh, Gene and I, Gene befriended me back when I was at CBS. I signed Teddy. He brought me a cassette on a group called Kids at Work, which was Teddy Riley. I signed Kids at Work uh, to CBS. They dropped him like the stupid people that they are. Uh, and uh, Busby gave him a deal at MCA. The only problem was that after Busby gave him the deal at MCA, Busby left MCA and went to Motown. So Gene couldn't get the first base with MCA. Al Teller, which was uh, the new president of MCA, was the old president of Columbia. So I knew Al Teller real well. So uh, Gene called me and told me he was having problems. He couldn't get nobody to talk to him. MCA really wanted to drop him, okay? Teller knew what Gene was, uh, and he didn't want nothing to do with it. But uh, I flew out to Los Angeles and met with Teller, told him I was taking over the label, got all the support that MCA could give us. Next thing was Teddy was two and a half million. I think that album went two and a half to three million before I left there. We did Rex in Effect. We did Redhead Kingpin with Virgin, 
uh, we did today uh, with Big Bub, my boy. And uh, we had a good run. Man. We had a real good run. We had about two, two, two and a half years, three years uh, until Gene starts stealing the money. You know, what Gene do? <laughs> and then in that era of music for me, my favorite New Jack Swing, I tell people Big Bub sound like a more souped up hip hop oriented version of Luther. And let's talk yeah. about Luther. Yeah. Oh, I love Luther. Luther, Luther was an ideal act. Uh, Luther used to be on Atlantic. Atlantic dropped him like stupid Arlark and Sandy. Uh, and people like, matter of fact, I had somebody ask me, how could you see Luther, big fat Luther as a, as a uh, soul singer? I said, man, that, that's the way Luther sing. I didn't care if Luther weighs 600 pounds, man. You can't duplicate that vocal. And you can't duplicate his emotional thing he puts into it. Nobody could have done Superstar. Uh, uh, none of them records, but Luther. Luther was uh, an only thing. I just hate that Luther, Luther killed himself with a diet and staying away from all that fried food because he used to stop and eat Kentucky fried chicken when we were pressed to, you know. But Luther, Luther had a, uh, something about him that most artists don't have, even though he had a wealth of talent. He worked his butt off. And that's what a lot of acts nowadays are missing. Uh, I've had big records on radio for artists, man. They want to stay at home and call their performances in. You can't do that. You got to get out there and, and beat the streets. Luther did that. Luther didn't mind doing whatever he had to do. Uh, get up three or four o'clock in the morning if I had to have there, have now. No questions. Get up and do it, man. He'd be on it. I, I love working with he did get to be a little prima donna uh, before it was over because I had to go curse him out a few times. But other than that, I loved him because even after I left Epic, man, I, I talked to Luther. I'll say this about three acts. Three acts that had class. Michael Jackson. I kept my relationship with Michael after Epic. He called me frequently. We talked. He even tried to loan me money. Uh, Michael was a genuine person. Charday, genuine person. Matter of fact, gave me money to start my private company after I left CBS. Uh, and uh, and Luther. Luther kept in touch with me the whole time. Sent me tickets to Vegas to go out and see him when he was in Vegas. You know, he was just a good person. Mm -hmm. Definitely okay. a good grad. One of the greats here yeah. we miss. Current projects. Right now, I'm not working anything but this book. Okay, I have stopped everything to get make this book when radio is king. People gonna look. People gonna be surprised when they read this book of how wild my life was. Okay, the, the, it's like it's like uh, the 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 office part in CBS. I was a monster promotion man. Still, it still is. I'm very dedicated to what I do. Matter of fact, I'm I'm meeting with a act I'm really hoping to get next week, new female that I think is a monster. Uh, but uh, uh, but I dealt with two or three drug dealers. I, 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 matter of fact, shit, I got in trouble with the IRS from working for with drug dealers. That was big back in the day. Uh, I had a lot of great members with Frank Leo, real good guy. Uh, and uh, I had a great, great time with Epic and Gene. 
You know, I say in the book, even though Dean fucked me out of my money, you know, he brought me back. He made me come back to the music industry because I had left and had started working in TV advocates. And Gene convinced me to come back and run uh, GR Productions for him. And I, I love that juice from having a hit record. You know, like I say in the book, Teddy was so hot, man. We got five or six records on the chart at one time. Right. Ain't nothing like it. And you can find it in this book when Radio Was King, available wherever you get your books. Any shout outs you want to give? How can people find more information about you in the book? Hey, man, the book is also available at whenradiowasking.net. It's at Amazon and all the ebook spots, Barnes and Nobles, everywhere. I will have an audio book out in a few weeks. Uh, but this book took a a lot of time and effort, more time and effort than I thought it would be because I thought it would just be writing down memories and putting it together and all that kind of stuff. But you'd be surprised how much stuff I had to edit out. Uh, people don't want things talked about. There's a couple of stories in there that I do disguise uh, because of people's families ask me to and the artists themselves ask me to. So uh, uh, I think it's a good read. You will be intrigued how I got my country behind to New York City. But and I thank you for putting me on, man. I appreciate anything that anybody does as far as this project is concerned. I'm available for any more interviews and uh phone calls. I'm doing a ton of radio stations to know that. So thank you man for having me. I appreciate the time. No problem. You can catch this interview wherever you stream and on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big thank you for Mr. TC Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins, thank you for coming on beyond thank the you, album man. cover, sir. Yes, sir.